You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. We're in Colossians chapter 4, and we are in the passage that gets to the end of the book. And so next week we'll have one more sermon on Colossians, and then we'll shift. Colossians 4, starting in verse 7. We'll read through verse 18. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. There's a textual variant there. It probably reads her house. And you'll see in a few moments, I'm going to refer to Nymphus as a she because I think it's a, it's a her. Verse 16, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Let's pause and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word this morning, shall we? Father, thank you for your grace in our lives, and thank you for this letter of Colossians that we've really meditated on this this last year. What a blessing it's been, what an encouragement it's been, what a challenge it has been to my own heart, and I know to the lives of of many people here. Thank you for, for moving us and shaping us by your word that grows us into the image of Christ. May we see his face clearly today, and may we grow in our Christian walk as we abide more deeply in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sport of tennis began in French monasteries in the Middle Ages. It's an old sport. And originally, these monks struck the ball with their hands. Developments in the game of tennis were very slow in coming because it took them several centuries before they introduced the racket. Uh, So tennis originally was a painful sport. And after a few centuries, they switched to the rackets. And the game has developed over the centuries because even at this point in time, the serve was a soft, gentle, gentlemanly, underhanded serve that was simply used to begin play. Well, if you watch tennis today, that's not how people serve. I don't know if any of you play pickleball, if, if that's how you serve playing pickleball. But the serve is a weapon now. And in the late 1800s, tennis players began to put side spin on it and then hit it harder and faster. And today, the serve is a crucial part of the game. If the server doesn't win the point, it's considered like a mini upset. And so a player's ability to break their opponent's serve is often the difference between winning and losing. The serve is, is very, very important in the game of tennis. And a good serve is essential then for success on the tennis courts. Well, the Bible uses the word serve. You're probably familiar with that. And you are probably aware that the Bible uses the word serve a little differently. Uh, When we serve one another, we don't walk around with a tennis racket and hit tennis balls at each other, although that would be entertaining for a Sunday. We could have service Sunday and have all of us walking around throwing tennis balls at each other. Uh, When we serve, we are, are ministering to another person for their benefit, for God's glory. We're imitating our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as we meet the needs of other people around us. Christian service is essential for success in the spiritual life. 
That's why serving the body is part of our discipleship pathway. It's number three. We, as we're growing together in our walk with the Lord, as we're trying to know Christ and make him known, we're gathering in worship, we're living in community. Number three, we're serving the body. Well, if you are a tennis player, and I know there are several here that play tennis, uh, if you play tennis, you have to work very hard at your serve. It's not an easy thing to do. If you think it's easy, try it sometime. Serving well is not, a, not something that you can do overnight. It takes a lot of hard work to improve. Uh, some players, especially once you start getting into the elite levels and the competitive levels and then the professional ranks, they take lessons on their serve. They hire a swing coach. They practice certain techniques for hours and hours and hours to get better at their serve. And I wonder how many of us as Christians are working that diligently to improve our service, to improve our ability to minister to one another. And what this passage shows us, I think, is a serving lesson, showing us five pointers that will help us improve our spiritual service as we minister day by day, week by week to one another. Well, the next natural question is, is a pretty straightforward one. How exactly does this passage that has a bunch of names and final instructions, how does this give us a serving lesson? Well, at first glance, as we read through it, it's just a list of names and instructions, as I mentioned a moment ago. Verses four through, uh, 7 through 14 introduce the Colossian believers to Paul's ministry team. In verse 15, Paul sent his own greetings and then told the Colossians to swap letters with the church at Laodicea, which was a neighboring city about nine miles away. He then signed the letter and requested that they remember him in prayer for his chains, and that ends the letter. But if we take a closer look at what Paul says about these people, his teammates, his fellow workers in the kingdom, if we take a closer look at these people, we see that the people in this passage model for us Christ-like service. A tennis instructor perhaps will show their student pictures or videos of a professional to demonstrate proper form or technique. And in, in a lot of ways, what Paul is doing is instructing us as our coach. And he's showing us pictures and models of faithful Christians who served to help us in our own service. And as we look at this passage, I think we'll be encouraged, but also challenged to improve our service to one another and to the Lord. So there are five lessons here that we'll tackle in our time today. The first lesson appears most frequently, so I listed it first. It's also the longest because it appears most frequently. So remember that as we go through it. Not every point is going to be as long as this first one, and you can breathe a sigh of relief, okay? First of all, faithfulness is the key to service. Faithfulness is the key to service. In sports, an athlete's mechanics make all the difference in the world. If you're a baseball pitcher or if you're serving in tennis, the swinging motion has to be repeated over and over and over again to make sure that it's consistent. Consistency is what brings you to that next level because that repetition allows you to do the same thing over and over again. In the spiritual realm, faithfulness is the secret to success. Spiritual service is not flashy, but faithful. It's not erratic, it's plodding, it's methodical. And several of Paul's team exemplified faithfulness, and one famously did not. So let's look at who we have for an example of what we can learn from each of these people. First, we meet Tychicus, who was dependable and responsible. Tychicus traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey, and he became a trusted co-worker of Paul. Look at how Paul described him in chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul trusted this man with several very important and even difficult tasks. If we do some cross-referencing, we see that Tychicus was sent to the island of Crete to replace Titus. Crete was a difficult ministry field. If you read the letter of Titus, you realize that the Cretans were liars and gluttons, and it was very difficult to advance the gospel there. And that's where Tychicus is sent. At the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus, which was a strategic church. It was a place that Paul had spent three years of his own time. This was not a church that he would just give to a novice or a rookie. He entrusted a, an important strategic church to Tychicus. 
Well, what's he doing in this letter? In this letter, Tychicus is carrying the letter from Paul to the believers at Colossae. And if you glance over at Ephesians 6.21, he's also carrying the letter of Ephesians. It is likely that he carried a third letter at the same time, the letter of Philemon. So here's one guy with his friend Onesimus, who we'll meet in a moment. He's carrying three inspired letters. Imagine if for, for just a few minutes he became unfaithful and decided to abandon course. The consequences would have been felt even to this day. We would have felt his unfaithfulness. So he was the courier to this church. And as a courier, he wasn't just responsible to carry the letter. He was supposed to go and then provide insight into the letter. He was, as Paul says, he will share and tell all the news about me. So it wasn't like he would walk in, hand the letter over and say, all right, you know, I'll take my, my DoorDash tip and walk out. He would come and as a minister of the gospel, he would come, maybe he even read the letter and he would pause and explain it. And share insights about what Paul was doing. And maybe if there was a, a confusing passage, he'd say, no, no, I talked to Paul about this, and this is what he means by that. He was ministering to the Colossians. This man was super dependable. He was trustworthy. Trustworthy enough to go to difficult mission fields, important churches, and carry out difficult tasks. Can you be counted on? Could you be described in this way? If, if we substituted your name in for Tychicus, would it make sense? Or would we all kind of cringe a little bit and say, yeah, probably don't want to trust that person with that responsibility. Consistency builds trust. And as we're trying to grow as a community here in, at the end of 2023 and into 2024 at Red Rocks, we have to trust one another. We have to serve one another and love one another. And consistency, reliability builds trust. And so I want to talk briefly about three ways that we grow in reliability as we serve one another. Because there's nothing more frustrating than to think someone's going to do something and then there's a gap. Whether that's in your personal life, whether that's at work, or whether that's here in the ministry. There are a lot of things we have going on. There are a lot of people involved, which is a wonderful thing. But if someone slacks and doesn't do their responsibility that day, they don't serve in the way that God's called them to. They don't serve in the way they've, they've volunteered to do. We all suffer for it. It's not just a, oh, no one will know. No, we all feel it. So how do we build dependability? How do we grow in responsibility? There are more than these three, believe me. There are books written about this. But let me just give you three simple ways. First is regular attendance. If you say you're going to serve in some way, just do it. And that may sound really complicated. Wink, wink, tongue in cheek, okay? That's faithfulness. Faithfulness is showing up. Faithfulness is being there week in and week out. If you say you're gonna do something but never show up or never follow through, it's gonna be hard for you to be counted on. We don't want a church full of people who are unfaithful in their service. Second is communication. So we grow in reliability by being regular in our attendance being faithful to our responsibilities. Second is communication. I've had certain ministry leaders in our church come to me and just say, I, I'm frustrated with this person. I keep scheduling them and they just don't show. Or they bail on me at the last minute and they don't tell me about it. I show up on Sunday and they're not there at this different place. That's really frustrating. If I did that to you, if I just decided to bail one Sunday, would you be frustrated? Don't, maybe don't answer that. <laughs> I know Pastor Jerry would be frustrated because if I don't show, who's going to preach? Well, we all have to be faithful in our communication. If something comes up, that's life. It's going to happen. But just tell someone. Take the text, pick up the phone, call someone, say, hey, I, I was scheduled to do this, but I can't do it because of this reason. Can you help cover for me? Find a replacement. So regular attendance, communication. But then third is consistent effort. Sometimes people are regular in their attendance, but it's like playing the lottery as to which version of them is going to show up that day. You know people like that at work, maybe. So, you know, the first thing you do is kind of feel out how their day's going in the morning. You're kind of like, okay, what's our mood of the day? Hopefully that's not us as Christians. Hopefully we have consistent effort, day in and day out, serving with joy and gladness in our hearts. So I want to encourage you to build trustworthiness in our community and people will trust you if they know what to expect. If you're full of integrity, being faithful week in and week out. 
Tychicus really modeled that. He could be counted on because he had, been, he had proven himself over and over again. There's another man, Aristarchus, who was faithful. And he suffered with Paul and, and even for Paul. This is kind of amazing. He was from Thessalonica and he traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18 through 20. And Aristarchus's friendship with Paul and association with Paul led to some eventful circumstances. Let me put it that way. In Acts 19, the city of Ephesus is in an uproar because the silversmiths are complaining that the gospel is taking away their money, which it was because Paul and his friends and the gospel was taking people out of idol worship and worshiping the one true God. And that had an economic effect, and that's where the persecution came from. This is an aside, but that's probably how some persecution is going to come to us as Americans, an economic effect. People don't like their money to be tampered with. And so the city comes together in this giant uproar, and they're in the stadium, and instead of getting to Paul, they can't find him. They drag two other people into this stadium in front of this riotous crowd, and Aristarchus is one of these guys. He's the one standing in for Paul in front of the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. In Acts 27 and 28, Paul is sentenced. He's appealed to Caesar. He's traveling to Rome, and there are two men that traveled with him, Luke and this man, Aristarchus. And if you just read the passage quickly, you miss it because his name is just mentioned one time at the beginning of chapter 27 of Acts. Here's a guy who is not only standing with Paul at the good times when he's seeing churches planted, he is suffering on behalf of Paul. I like to think of him as taking a bullet for Paul. If there was ever such thing as an ancient bodyguard, maybe that was him. Maybe he was the one, maybe he was a big guy, you know, 6'4", 6'5", looked like he could still bench 350. I don't know, I'm making that up. Whatever his physical attributes were, he was so committed to Paul and so faithful to him that he was willing to suffer imprisonment and chains. In fact, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. And I don't think that's a spiritual reference where we're all prisoners of Christ, we're all slaves of Christ. I think that's a literal in chains man, a man that's, that's now bound for the sake of the gospel. And many commentators have that same opinion. Perhaps he was arrested because he wouldn't leave Paul's side. Perhaps he voluntarily became a prisoner so that he could stay with Paul and minister to him. That's not out of the question either. Either way, this man Aristarchus, a no-name really. We don't know much about him. No one names their kids after him. He is embracing the shame and the stigma of being in chains so that he could, he could continue to support the Apostle Paul. That's incredible. What a testimony. What do we learn from his example? <laughs> Are we willing to suffer persecution and shame for the Lord's cause? Or is there a line that we've drawn in our minds where I'll stand for Jesus until this, until it costs me an opportunity at work, until I lose face in front of my friends, until my family speaks out against me. If Jesus is truly your treasure, then being faithful to him is worth far more than a little shame or suffering, and Aristarchus proved that. After all, We've, we run after Jesus, do we not? We follow after Christ. And Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that he despised the shame of the cross and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we follow after him. And we take men like Aristarchus as our model that even if shame or reproach comes upon us for the name of Christ, we'll be faithful through it and we'll stay the course. Luke was the other man who traveled with Paul on his journey to Rome, survived the shipwreck with him. And Luke was, was a frequent companion of Paul. He traveled on both the second and third missionary journeys. And, and here's a guy that just stood firm to the end. Luke's one of my heroes because he's not really front and center. He's just kind of around the fringes. But, but if you do some sleuthing, you realize that this man was there almost all the time. And at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, what does he say? He says this, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. Some of the others had had departed from him, as we'll see here in a moment. 
others he had sent to different places and were doing ministry, but, but there was a job to be faithful in companionship. And Luke stayed there. He stood by Paul. And there was a lot more challenges with Paul than most people. Now, verse 14 calls him the beloved physician. Perhaps he was Paul's personal physician. Paul accumulated many uh, nicks and bruises <laughs> and worse in his journeys. He was beaten with rods. He was, uh, he was stoned at one point. He was uh, whipped. He was physically beat up. Uh, Luke's medical abilities would have been needed. And yet Paul doesn't necessarily focus on that. He doesn't say, Luke, the beloved physician, continues to heal my body. He just says, Luke is with me. There was a personal camaraderie, a friendship. Luke was steadfast, strengthening Paul through his challenges. And I want to encourage you, sometimes we don't think about ministry as just standing with someone. But how many of us, through the the ups and the downs of life, need other people to lean on? You can be Luke to someone else. In, in, In this ministry, oftentimes of just being present and faithful, often it transcends words. There's things that you don't know how to say. You don't know how to speak into other people's loss. You don't know how to speak into their grief. But if you just stand there and you weep with them and you stand firm with them and you walk with them, you can have this ministry. That's what the body does. That's how we rally together and strengthen one another. Your presence is a powerful force. Luke was faithful. Archippus, or Archippus, however you want to pronounce it, Archie for short, he was exhorted by Paul. So he's not a co-worker of Paul. In verse 17, he's, it seems like he's pastoring in the area. Perhaps he's the pastor of the church at Laodicea. Perhaps he was younger and needed some encouragement. But whatever his situation was, Paul says something very specific. Fulfill your ministry. Carry it out. See to it that you don't neglect the work of the ministry that God's called you to. And that certainly applies to pastors. But that broadly applies to all of us. If you're involved in a ministry somewhere, focus on that ministry. Fulfill it with excellence. Don't, don't think that just because it's, it's not as uh, noticed or it's not as prominent that it's not important. The small ministries are important because every person is important. If you're teaching two and three-year-olds, yeah, they may not retain it. You may want to pull your hair out when you're done with them. But it's important. You're ministering to them as unto the Lord. I think the phrase, bloom where you are planted, applies here. Instead of always looking for something better or making excuses, well, I can't serve there because I I just never know what uh, other opportunities may come up. Well, find some place to invest in other people and just be faithful to it. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is that he's sovereign, which means that if he wants to put you in another place, he'll do that. If he wants to give you a ministry of prominence, if he wants to give you a ministry that a lot of people notice, he'll do that. But you know what he often does? Is he gives those ministries to people who don't want the fame. And so we have to lay aside our ambition and say, I'm just gonna do the thing that God's called me to right now. And I'm gonna serve someone else in the place that he's put me. Jesus said that faithfulness in little things leads to faithfulness in larger things. So if you have a ministry, if you're serving somewhere, do it as unto the Lord. Be content with that and strive to do it with excellence. So there are four examples here of people who did their job with faithfulness, but there's one that was very sad. Demas is a name that we recognize because he was not faithful. He's only mentioned three times in Scripture. He's mentioned here as a co-worker of Paul. He's mentioned in Philemon 24 as a co-worker of Paul. Those books were probably written around the same time. And then several years later, maybe three, four, five years later, he's mentioned a third time in 2 Timothy 4. And this is what Paul says about him there. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Imagine having your name in Scripture, and that's what's said about you. (laughs) And it's easy for us, especially as preachers, to stand here and say, well, don't be like Demas and, and rail on that man without recognizing that we're all tempted in the same way he was. Because he didn't just abandon the ministry. Why did he leave Paul? 
Because he was in love with this present world. He was in love with the world around him. Do any of us ever struggle with having our affections set on these things below? This is a huge temptation. And what Demas shows us is that what we love will eventually show our loyalties. We're going to be loyal to what we love. Present success or present involvement in ministry doesn't give me a free pass for the future. It doesn't protect us from future temptation. And the devil has many tools to try to make us stumble. Persecution is one, certainly. Affliction. But I I think he's enticing the American church, not with those things, but with affluence and with comfort and convenience. And when we start loving those things, our love for Christ wanes. And we start treasuring the things that we can buy and the things that we can experience and the things that we can do. We stop treasuring Christ like the scriptures call us to. The devil has many tools to make us stumble and the attraction of the present world is like a power tool. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, stay faithful. Love the Lord Jesus with all your heart. Treasure him above all else. Don't be in love with this present world. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't be weary with well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you faint not. Be faithful to the Lord's cause. Faithfulness is the key to service. Lesson number two, I think is a huge encouragement. And it's this. God can use anyone, even those with checkered pasts. Even people with checkered pasts. All people are usable by God. Consider the man writing the letter. Who's writing the letter? His name is Paul. What was Paul's testimony? (laughs) He was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians. He traveled to other cities trying to find Christians to harm them, to hurt them physically. Because he was so zealous for what he thought the Lord was doing that he was willing to go and attack other people. And what did God's grace do to Paul? God's grace saved him and changed him, who was formerly a persecutor and a blasphemer is what he said, to now being an apostle of his church. God's grace transforms even the hardest of cases. That's Paul's testimony. Well, there are two others in this passage that add to that. Mark is a wonderful story. God gives second chances. Our culture has this idea of cancel, canceling right now. Are you familiar with this? Of course you are. Cancel culture. You do something wrong or something that's, that's out of step with the current prevailing thought, what do they do? You're out of, out of step, we're going to wipe you off, and it's not just what you have for the future, we're going to go back and erase you from the past. I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to do in a lot of cases. Now, there are some people that, that are child abusers and molesters in Hollywood and things like that, that yeah, <laughs> They should go to jail, absolutely. But there are some people that simply for conservative beliefs or Christian beliefs are being attacked for that and they're being canceled. That's not the way it is with God. Who was Mark? Mark was the cousin of Barnabas and it seems like he was a young man when he went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. He kind of gets a front row seat. Maybe he's showing ministry potential. Maybe he feels like he wants to serve God in some way. And he goes along and they, they... sailed to Cyprus, and he's there with them through that ministry. Then they come back to Asia Minor, to, to modern-day Turkey. And the Bible says in Acts 13 that Mark left them, departed the work. And we know that that wasn't a good thing, because later in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas are getting their heads together saying, hey, let's get another journey together. Let's go and visit these same churches. Barnabas says, yeah, and I'm going to bring Mark with us. And Paul says, that's where I draw the line. We're not bringing him. And the, the contention is so sharp between them that they actually separate. Mark goes with Barnabas in ministry. Paul takes Silas, and the narrative follows Paul. And so Mark kind of disappears from the scene, as does Barnabas. We don't know really what happened to Barnabas after that. For about 10 years, give or take, Mark is not mentioned in Scripture. 
But something happens in those 10 years. Maybe something happened with Barnabas at that time. Maybe something happened even before that. And Mark starts proving his faithfulness because he begins to pop up. He's listed here in in verse 10 as a fellow worker of Paul. I mean, that's shocking. At the end of Philemon, he's mentioned as a fellow worker. And the extra instructions here in verse 10 about welcoming him shows Paul's changed attitude toward him. That if he comes to you, I've already given you instructions, welcome him. Don't let my prior separation from him be the cause of your own separation. Welcome him, invite him in. Paul's opinion of Mark was so reversed that by the end of his life, Paul needed him by his side. Again, I've referenced 2 Timothy 4 a number of times. There's a number of people mentioned there. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he's talking about where all of his co-workers have gone, where he sent them all. And he says, bring someone with you. And the one man he wants by his side, in addition to Timothy, is Mark. The man Paul previously refused to take along is now the one man he needs by his side. That's the grace of God at work. God changed Mark. And Mark ends up not being just useful to Paul, as as Paul wrote. He ends up becoming like a son in the faith to Peter. 1 Peter 5 says that Mark is like a son to me. And church history tells us that Mark ministered with Peter and to Peter until Peter died, and Mark jotted down notes from Peter's preaching, and what he jotted down became the gospel of Mark. And so Mark, this failure of a man, is impacting us today. God gives second chances. And so if you've got failure on your record, that doesn't mean you have no future. In fact, the place of failure oftentimes is the ministry place that God has for you. I think of Chuck Colson, who was jailed for his role in the Watergate scandal. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man, just not a nice man. He goes to prison, and he comes to faith in Christ, and he's got a criminal record, and he's saying, what do I do now? I can't go back into politics. And God changes his heart so much that he starts a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship that's now the largest prison ministry in the United States. Thousands of convicts have come to faith in Christ because of him. And I recognize that, that there may be some here who are, who are carrying significant guilt for past failures. You've messed up in a big way, and maybe no one else knows, but you know. Maybe you've moved to Denver to get away from that. I don't know. I don't have anyone in mind. And what you need to hear from this passage is that, yes, there may be human consequences. Chuck Colson, for instance, always had a criminal record. But while there may be human consequences, past failures do not prevent God from using you in the future. Can you be thankful for that? It's a good thing God doesn't use perfect people because how many of us would God use? Anyone? He sure wouldn't use me. But in God's kind providence, he can take the wreckage of your life and transform it into something glorious. Failure is not final. Mark shows us that God gives second chances. But Onesimus shows us that God employs the marginalized. If there was ever a person who said, I just don't have what it takes background-wise to be used by God, God can't use me, it's Onesimus. This man's a slave, for starters, And then he ran away from his master, Philemon. And then he probably stole from his master on the way out the door. So he wasn't just a runaway slave. He was a criminal runaway slave. That puts a a blemish on your record. Even today in America, if you have have a criminal record, it's very difficult to get hired. It's very difficult to make any sort of progress in life. Onesimus' situation is laid out in the letter of Philemon. And Paul had come across Onesimus. We don't know how. Maybe the providence of God. Maybe Onesimus sought out Paul. We don't know. But somehow they get connected. And Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And after a period of time, Onesimus is now being sent back to his former master, Philemon. And Paul explains the transformation to Philemon by writing a letter. And at the heart of that letter, he shares a little play on words. Because he says, Onesimus was formerly not profitable to you, but now he's profitable to you and to me. 
You know what the name Onesimus means? It means useful. He who was formerly totally unuseful to you now is incredibly useful because the Lord has saved him and now I'm sending him back to you. God employs the down and outers, the marginalized, and turns them into faithful people. I mean, Paul describes him as a faithful and beloved brother. If you didn't know the background, you would just think he was another coworker. You wouldn't know that he was a slave. You wouldn't know that he had all this junk on his record. And what that shows us is that credentials are not important with the Lord. God specializes in using weak people. God loves to use those without earthly notoriety. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1 shows us that God chooses the foolish and the weak and the lowly to showcase his mighty power. So that when people look around and say, how is that guy doing that? How is that woman accomplishing that? All the power and the glory then belong to who? To the Lord. For God to use you, you have to renounce any strengths you perceive to bring to the table. Because God will say, no, I don't need your strength. We're not going to go that route. You need me. That's all you need. And so if you say, on the, on the flip side, if you think, I, I just don't know if God can use me, what would I do? What, what do I have to offer the Lord? If you're a Christian, God can use you. If he can make Balaam's donkey speak, he can use you. If you've got significant failures, if you've been marginalized, or if you feel that way, your previous sins can be washed in the blood, put under the cross. If God can use a persecutor, a ministry failure, and a runaway slave, then God can use you. He specializes in the hard cases. The Christian life isn't just for people who have it together. It's for people who know they don't have it together and who cling to God. So God uses those who are down and out. Third, the third lesson from our coach here today is that serving includes more than just physical tasks. What do you think of what, when you hear the word serving? If I, would, if I stood up here and told you in church, all right, we need everybody to be serving somewhere, what comes to mind? Are you thinking like teaching children or, or working on the landscaping or the grounds or maybe like being part of the welcome team or the AV team and like doing something? Is that what comes to mind? For me, that, that's what I think of first of all. And what this passage does is correct us. Because our view of ministry needs to expand. Two men, Epaphras and Tychicus, show us that serving is more than just what I do with my hands. And it's more than just what I do on a Sunday morning. I'm thankful for every one of you who uses your hands or your mouths to teach or to serve or to minister in some way. It's wonderful. I'm thankful for you who serve on a Sunday morning. But if that's our definition of service, then, then we're going to be truncated. Service is much broader than that. How do we see that? Well, Epaphras has a ministry of prayer, and I've spent an entire message on that earlier this month, focusing on Paul and Epaphras' ministry of prayer. And so for time's sake, I'm just going to have to footnote that and say if you're interested in that and you didn't hear it, you can go on our website and listen to that. But what Epaphras shows us is that prayer isn't just perfunctory, like I'm just doing it because I'm passing the time. He is really, truly laboring on behalf of the other people. Even though he's physically separate from them in a different country at the time, he can reach through time and space by going to the Lord in prayer and lifting up other people for their spiritual progress. That's in verses 12 and 13. But we also need to revisit this man, Tychicus, the first one mentioned. Because he had a ministry of encouragement. In verse 8, we read that he will comfort your hearts. That when he shares what Paul is going through and he delivers this letter, he's not just going to be a passive bystander. He's going to actively comfort your hearts. And that word comfort is translated several different ways in the New Testament. It's a broad word. It means beseech or exhort or encourage or comfort. And so Tychicus has this ministry of appealing to these other people to edify them, to build them up, to strengthen them based on his words. His ministry was to uplift and inspire others with hope. That's the ministry of encouragement. And that can be done far beyond the four walls that we sit in here. The ministry of encouragement is something that we all need. Frankly, with how depressing this life is, 
and how challenging it is to walk with the Lord, we all could use people in our life who are calling us up and, and talking with us or communicating with us in some way saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm praying for you today. The Lord's going to be good to us today because he's always good. That when you're sick or you're hurting, there's people coming to you, not just one or two, but like 20 or 30. I mean, how uplifting is it when one person comes to you and is encouraging you? And how much more encouragement could be had if 250 people come and do that together? There's a ministry of encouragement that can take place because serving is more than just physical tasks. Number four, ordinary things can be employed for spiritual service. And what's fascinating to me in this list is that not all of Paul's co-workers were preachers. He didn't just take this, this evangelistic team where every single one of them was preaching the gospel and they'd go to like different street corners. They were a team that all had different roles. Certainly some of them preached, but we know of at least a couple that didn't. Luke being one of them. Luke is using his secular skills to advance the gospel. How? Well, he's the beloved physician, as we mentioned already. He's using his medical training to minister to other people. And there are some of you who have gone and used, I mean, done exactly what Luke's done. You've taken your medical training, you've traveled to all parts of the world to bless other people and share the gospel with them through medical clinic. That's awesome. But Luke wasn't just a doctor, he was a writer as well. And in some ways, I kind of picture Luke as when Paul gets up to preach, Luke's kind of sitting in the back corner. He's the one kind of running the different things in the background, making sure everything goes smoothly, and he's taking notes, and he's taking notes, and he's taking a lot of notes. And at some point, he compiles his notes into this long document about Jesus, and it's the Gospel of Luke. And then there's more material to talk about, so he writes a second volume, a follow-up, a sequel, and it's the book of Acts. And what Luke is doing is showing us the progress of the gospel from God through Jesus into Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you know how much of the New Testament Luke wrote? It's only two books. But if you calculate the amount of material, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. A quarter. Here he's using a writing gift, a research gift, a medical gift, all to advance the cause of the gospel. So the question that we have for you, that I have for you, is what gifts do you have that can leverage the spread of the gospel? What skills do you have that you can use to serve others? I love the fact that many of our law enforcement officers serve on our safety team. That makes me feel very comfortable, truthfully. You don't want me on the safety team. <laughs> you want the guys who are trained that way. I love the fact that we've got medical professionals going out. I love the fact that we've got people with trade skills, electricians and plumbers, that are going and helping the elderly and shut-ins in our church to do some basic repairs. That's incredible. Be creative. What gifts has God given to you that you can then turn around and leverage to advance the gospel? Nymphus shows us that it's not just our skills that can be used. She's using her possessions. She used her home to advance the church. And as, as I mentioned when I read through the passage, there's a, a debate about if this is a female or a male. There's a textual variant. I think it's, a, it's a, referring to a woman. I think Nymphus is a, is a woman because of a number of reasons. The harder reading, as far as the text goes, is female. Most likely a scribe a couple hundred years later wouldn't change it to a female. They would change the name to a male name in that culture. So it seems that this is referring to a woman, and her role is very important. What's she doing? She's hosting the church. She's doing something, she's using something we all need and have, hopefully, a place to live, and using that to help spread the gospel, to support the ministry. She's practicing hospitality, as 1 Peter 4.9 commands, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You can use your possessions for ministry. Now, if there's all of a sudden a run on large screen TVs and we all start thinking, how can I use this for ministry? Ladies, don't give into that, okay? Most likely your husband is not gonna use a 65 inch TV for ministry. Let's just be real here. But can you use your home to host a group or to host a Bible study? Absolutely. But you, I don't feel comfortable teaching the Bible study. Well, that's fine. We have several people who host home prayer groups that don't lead it. They just open their home. 
What about your car? Most of us have at least one vehicle. There are a number of elderly and shut-ins that need rides to different places. You can use your car in ministry. Now again, we could take that to an extreme and justify going and getting a sports car because we get to get, you know, the 85-year-old shut-in to the, the doctor's office in record time. I don't, I don't advise that. But what else has God given you that you can use to encourage others and to, to advance the gospel? God's work is not confined to Sunday mornings. And again, I want to encourage you to be creative in this. Fifth and finally, it takes a team. Everyone has a role to play. There's a rule in churches that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That's kind of the the rule of thumb. I don't think that's true here, actually. I think about 60% of our church members serve somewhere, which is wonderful. But that's still 40% who aren't involved in some way. If 40% of, of the Broncos this afternoon decided not to play and just sit on the sideline, would the team do well? Maybe, depending on which ones decided not. But I think you understand the point. If the whole team is not participating, the whole team is limited in some way. It's the same way it is for the church. If you're coming week in and week out, and you're not serving in some capacity, and again, serving is not just what you do with your hands. If you're not using yourself, your abilities, your skills, your talents, your time to invest in other people, then we all suffer for it. And Paul's team shows us this in two ways. There are eight men who are listed as part of Paul's team, but three of them specifically bring comfort to Paul. In verses 10 and 11, Paul mentions three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus. These are his Jewish co-workers. They're of the circumcision. These friends, Paul says, are specifically a comfort to him. You see, a team brings comfort and support to one another. In tennis, the analogy that we're kind of using here this morning, it's most of the time a solo sport. Occasionally you play doubles. But the Christian life is not a solo sport. It's very much a team sport. Part of the joy of ministry is serving with other people. Your spiritual service doesn't have to be alone. In fact, I I think most of the time you can do your spiritual service. You can lift up other people together. You know, the young adults have a, a, an activity this Friday to go pack shoeboxes with Operation Christmas Child. I'm looking forward to that because there's going to be 13, 14, 15 of us somewhere in there going together to do something, and that shared experience unites us. I mean, yeah, I could go volunteer by myself. The work is still the same. I probably could get more done if I'm not talking. But what's the point? Is it just to produce or is it to be in community with one another? It takes a team. Take someone along with you to do ministry. If you're visiting someone else, bring someone with you. If you're praying, call them up and pray with someone else. If we have little pockets of people starting to serve together, the church grows in unity. But then we see that unity in Christ triumphs over other divisions. On Paul's team, there were three men who were Jewish which means that there were five that were mentioned here that were Gentiles. And, and if we've grown up in church, that, that, that ethnic tension doesn't like grab our hearts anymore. Let me put it this way. It would be like having a Jew and a Palestinian Arab, a black American and a white American, a Russian and a Ukrainian all on the same team, all on the same missions trip. And if, you're, if you have a sane mind and you hear that, what are you thinking? You're thinking, I don't want to be the the leader of that trip because there's going to be conflict. There's going to be a lot of tension. There's going to be a lot of blow-ups even. That's kind of what Paul had, though. Paul's ministry team pictured his theology. He said in Colossians 3, 10, and 11, in Christ there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, slave slave nor free. He had Greeks and Jews and freemen and a slave all together, and they had unity. Why? Because the gospel can overcome all differences, even racial ones. The gospel triumphs over all other divisions, and it brings us together. And as we then serve our Lord, we don't serve and say, well, I don't want to serve with that person because they look a little different from me, or they're a little different age than me, or they, they have a different opinion on this than me. No, the gospel transcends those differences. It unites us together by the grace of God. 
Unity in Christ triumphs over other divisions. So to be a Christian is to be a servant. And here are the five serving lessons. Faithfulness is the key to service. God can use anyone, even people with a checkered past. Serving includes more than just physical tasks. Ordinary people can be employed for spiritual service. And it takes a team. Everybody has a role to play. You can't be a little Christ if you don't serve others. That's what the word Christian means. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And what breaks my heart is that there are many Christians, perhaps some here today even, who have no interest in serving others. Who don't serve others. And and there's a small number perhaps that are just flat out selfish. Just, I don't want to do it. I don't want to serve others. My time is more valuable than that. And if that's you, repent of your selfishness, humble yourself, and look to your Savior. Because a small look at your Savior would say, yeah, I I can't have that attitude. But I I think that most people that aren't serving have an obstacle that they can't get beyond. That's what I think. That there's something holding them back. And yet these examples in this passage show us that all those excuses can be set aside. You're never too old to encourage someone. You're never too frail to pray. You're never too normal or ungifted to find somewhere to bless someone else. Your past is not an obstacle for God. He delights in showing grace to the weak and marginalized. Everyone can be used. It just takes a willing heart. And it also takes the grace of God. And now this sermon today is focused really on our responsibility, but I would be remiss if I didn't add that God's grace is active in, this, in our hearts. He changed Paul, he changed Mark, he changed Onesimus. He can change us and grow us too. And so, as we conclude, let's rely on the Spirit of God and apply these lessons from this text while trusting that the Lord will give us the grace to do it. And hopefully, my prayer is that over time we would become united as a healthy body loving, not just serving out of necessity or serving because we're we, out of a grudging heart, but serving cheerfully and joyfully. And when we do that, we will glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? And as we go to prayer, I would encourage you to take a moment to reflect on how you can improve your service. We've talked about a lot of different things. This is more like a shotgun message today where it kind of hits a bunch of different areas but I want to encourage you to think about how God's convicting you. Commit that to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that we through through his poverty might become rich. And our service is based on him. We model ourselves after the perfect example of the Savior. Give us grace today and this week to take action steps, to not simply hear a message like this that calls us to act and walk away unchanged. Give us strength, we pray, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.